I got love for you, man. You know what, I'm <laughs> what are we talking about? You know, I'm not here to start any trouble. I'm only going to say nice things about you from now on. I think you're handsome, and I think you're a wonderful host. I'm fat and I'm overweight. Just don't say anything silly. I was waiting for you to say that. I'm not laughing about it. You think this is funny? I take this serious. You know, I don't want y'all to take anything that, out of context that I'm saying. He's very funny. He likes to joke around a lot. As a personality and as an entertainer, yes. This is going to be really quick. I'm not taking any questions. Go ahead and get comfortable. I'm going to talk for a little bit. You're listening to Cabbie Presents, the podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Cabbie Presents podcast. I'm your host, Cabbie Richards. Thank you for the click or for hitting play on your way to work, whether you're at work or on your way to school or at the gym or in the park with the dog. This is a special conversation for me because generally the friends that have these extended combos with me are you know, athletes or other guys in the media or performers or even some musicians. But this dude is an actor. And this dude has a leading role in a network show on Fox and a big character in a franchise movie. We've been friends for over a decade. He's changed my life via a burger chain, which we will get to. And he joins me on the phone right now. If it's going to be uh, an interview, I'm going to conduct it. So I'll answer my own questions, ask myself the questions, then give y'all the answers. The first time I met this man, actually, I can't specifically remember when we met, but I know it was through a mutual friend named Derek Gilroy, who, affect who I affectionately call hype, as in he's fully consumed in everything the Hollywood machine pumps out and knows what everybody is up to, all their side projects, all their current projects. And uh, some call him D-Rock. In fact, um, that's his DJ handle, and he's got a tattoo on his arm. And I'm not even sure if my guest, Sean Ashmore, calls him D-Rock. Either way, my friendship with Sean began in 2001, and since then, his career has blossomed. Many know him as Iceman in the X-Men movies, but more recently, he can be seen as Special Agent Mike Weston. I'm not sure if you are a special agent, but FBI dude Mike Weston on Fox's hit show, The Following. To me, he's known as Sweet Boy. As in, he's Zac Efron pretty with some blue eyes that make 14-year-old girls melt from here to Australia. I'm happy to have Sean Ashmore on the Cabbie Presents podcast. Welcome, my dude. Cabbie, how you doing, man? Fantastic, man. Fantastic. Dude, I, mean, I, was, I was actually thinking about the first time we met, and, uh, and I was going through it in my head. And you know where I think the first time we hung out might have been at, do you remember the Beat Junkie? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I think oh. it might have been there, and I, and I think that you knew Derek because of Drew, yeah. our buddy Drew Nelson. That's and right. you worked with Drew, and I think that's how that all came together, because I was thinking, I was like, where did we meet? And I think I think the first time I actually met you was at the Beat Junkie in Toronto. But the Beat Junkie, oh my God, like that place. That? Yeah, it was it, the Beat Junkie was like a house. It was like a small, little, it was on uh, Richmond Street Richmond? West in, uh, in the club district, which no longer exists really on Richmond Street. But yeah, it was like a little... A little house, a few levels, and it was just like 
where you know DJs were you know spinning records on vinyl and playing like Tribe and you know the stuff that we love from like the mid '90s yeah, Wu Tang and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was fun, right? We just go and like take over the the bottom floor and just hang out. It was like Wednesdays or Thursdays or something like that, like a really quiet night. We all get together. Yeah. So where in the world are you? I, okay, I'm in Los Angeles right now, and um, which is where I've been for like 12 years. This is this is home sweet home now. Um. So okay, for the audience, because uh, our our friendship is going to be sort of weird, but. Uh, this might even be weirder. Can you describe the voicemails that I used to leave on your house phone in your at your condo uh, from circa 2002 to 2005? What kind of language can I use on this podcast? <laughs> I mean, <it's... laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to use. I don't even I know. Get if into you... Details. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it without without getting too too graphic. But I mean, I, I would get these voicemails from Cabby talking about like hunting me down beating me with the bat, just because. <laughs> but it was all in love. But I, I think the first time I got one, I actually thought that it was the wrong number. I was like, this guy is, this guy is looking for, 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 like, a severe... He's looking for someone that stole money from him or something. And uh, it would go on for five minutes. It would be the most detailed, elaborate, uh, just so eloquent, but about hunting somebody down and coming after him. And, uh, yeah, I think, I, I don't know, is, is that accurate, Cabby? Is that is that how I could explain? It was poetry. It was poetry in a violent, hilarious way. And, uh, yeah, I think the first time I got really scared and then realized it was you because I think you said, okay, sweet boy, I'm going to call you back. And I was like, oh, that was Cabby. Okay, I'm safe. Yeah, the, that was that was a pretty accurate description. My my language was certainly colorful. It was extreme. It was gruesome. I used to talk about, like, gasoline boots or, like, uh, spiked bats. Like, it, yeah. was, didn't, it was... Didn't, it was like a Wu-Tang intro. Exactly. Like, that's you know exactly I mean? where yeah. I stu stole it from. Yeah, that's exactly what it was like. But it went on for, like, minutes. Minutes. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that, like, my parents didn't come over while I was listening to, like, one of those messages. Because, you know, my parents would pop in every once in a while to the condo where we lived downtown and, like, just hit the messages. Because Aaron and I, my brother and I, lived together. And we were bachelors, you know. We'd let 99 messages build up on the answering machine and we wouldn't erase them. We're just kind of lazy guys like that. And so my dad would come in and, like, you know, start erasing messages, and I'm thankful that you didn't hear that because I think you probably would have called the cops. I think your mom heard one once. I, I don't. I think <laughs> I think your mom heard one, and she's like, I, I think she told maybe told Aaron. She's like, um, there's a a voicemail here for you guys, or or I don't know how she. I don't even know how she talks. I don't, I think I've only met your parents once, but um, I think she did pick one up once. Yeah, which, yeah. which well, would have been you know, a little bit bizarre for her. Awkward, awkward. I'm sure, but uh, it all worked out. Listen, I want the first story you tell uh, in this conversation to be one the the story that uh, has blown me away. Tell me about the time that you ate dinner with George Clooney. Oh wow, yeah, that was that was crazy. So, um, I you know I've been an actor for a long time. I've sort of worked in the business and had all these sort of like amazing experiences and, and gotten to. Um, you know, interact with some people that I that I think are amazingly talented, crazy artists, actors, directors, all this kind of stuff. But the reason this story was so crazy is really the setup, where we were, how it went down, the fact that, okay, so let me start from the beginning. Um, I have a, a friend of mine named Kevin Zegers, who's also a Canadian actor, and we sort of came up in Los Angeles at the same time. We, we both moved out here, um, stayed 
at this little kind of like motel hotel called Highland Gardens, which Cabby, you know about. You've been out here. You came to visit. You stayed. Yeah, well, but that's how we got. To, we, that's how we got to know each other. We'll, I know we'll get to that later. I'm sure <laughs> that's about that. But anyways, Kevin and I have known each other for years. We had the same publicist and the same manager, so we sort of ran in the same circles, and we got this invite randomly to uh, be flown to Milan um, by uh, Giorgio Armani to go see the Armani shows. So, I mean, that was incredible. I was, I've never, I, you know, I haven't really been a big fashion guy, but the opportunity to go to Italy, to be in the heart of that culture and like that sort of amazing fashion world it was pretty cool. So we got flown out there. We got dressed to the nines in suits. And I thought that's what it was going to be. We saw, we see, a sh- we go to one of the shows we, you know, have dinner with people, we schmooze a little bit, which is what it was. But then the second night we were there, I get this phone call saying, um, basically, uh, you know, put on a nice suit because you've been invited to uh, Mr. Armani's Palazzo in, in Milan, his house, his home. He's hosting a dinner, and he, he wants you guys, Kevin and I, to, to come visit at this, at, this, at this house. And I was like, okay, like I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know you know, what to think. I didn't know what to do, but I was like, let's go, let's, let's roll. So we get there. And I mean, it's star studded. I feel out of my league. And, um, there we are sitting on the, the, the terrace, the top, the top level of his palazzo in, in Milan with this beautiful dinner sitting around. And, and then I look over and there's George Clooney. I mean, the guy looks like he's born to wear an Armani suit and he's just sitting there and he's, he's just chilling. He's hanging out. The nicest guy you could ever meet the most down-to-earth guy you could ever meet, and the most charming guy you could ever meet. We're just sitting there just shooting, you know, shooting stuff, hanging out, drinking tequila or whatever we were drinking, and it was just this amazing experience. And the other thing that I won't forget about that night is the, the sculptures that he had around the house. <laughs> yes, Do yes. you remember this? These, these panthers. They're yeah. like these panthers. And I, I don't even remember how I told you about this the first time, but, I mean, literally, we, we got a little tipsy, and we're roaming around the house just kind of taking a look at things. And one of the, I think it was Mr. Armani himself, was just saying, like, look at the, look at the Panthers, and he started talking in this Italian accent. And somehow, Kevin and I, and I think maybe even George, were, were posing around these Panthers, like, like cat-like. You know what I mean? Like, we're just kind of drunk. I'm just going along. I, I know I'm going to look like a fool in these pictures, but I'm just <laughs> doing it because I'm asked to do it. So I think that you, was like... I, I think you had some of those photos on your phone. Like, back when, like, Fo- photo technology wasn't that great, but you still had a yeah. couple of grainy pictures of like yeah, you're like you can't really like get a set. Yes, exactly. Old school Nokia, and yeah. uh, and I had a picture of that, and and it was just one of those nights you can't really explain it. I didn't expect to be in that sort of company or in that sort of situation, and and it blew my mind. So you know, I've been lucky, lucky, lucky to to sort of get to uh, to experience stuff like that. Two, you know what I mean? It's just it's just a crazy crazy life sometimes. Two questions: uh, A, who were George Clooney's? Uh, guess his dates or his Dude, date. I don't even remember who did I tell you I don't even remember you did, no you, you told me that he had two like he was there with two two women I'm sure he was but I honestly don't remember who now uh well I don't know if they're anybody famous but like just that just oh, it just well, built the I'm mythology sure in my mind that Clooney is just one of the kings of earth Oh, and, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, well, let me put it this way too like the women that were there were all incredibly beautiful I mean it was all models and actresses and stuff like that so i mean honestly i, I, I if he had two he probably had four you know what i mean um <laughs> but, but I, don't, I don't specifically remember but there was tons of beautiful women there absolutely no doubt and when you guys were actually eating dinner who was doing like most of the talking 
I was doing none of the talking. The man that held court was George Clooney. He is the most charming, most, I mean, you know, you see why this guy is a movie star. He just, he just held, he was the king of the castle. There's no doubt in my mind. And he just was like, I don't even know what he was talking about, but it was interesting. He could have been talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the walk he took his dog on in the morning and it was fascinating. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everybody yeah. was listening. You were just, you just lean in. Uh, he's like the he's like the the Jay Gatsby of uh, nice. Milan that makes great Very reference. How does it work for you, Sean? Because okay, uh, so this was you got invited to Milan. Is this after X Men Two came out or the third X Men? This was after the third one. After the third so X Men, okay. Yeah, you know, or, or I think the third one was about to come out. It was sort of it, it seemed to coincide with that sort of uh, you know right before an X Men movie comes out, there's always like this big push and like it's very exciting and people sort of get more interested in you than they are when you don't have a big X Men movie out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I've, I've had that up and down several times in my career because I've done a few of those a few of those movies. So I feel like it was uh, it was around when X-Men The Last Band came out. So that was probably about six years ago. Um, so how does it work for you? Because you are, you have this, like, uh, I mean, you you have these huge credits on your, like, the X-Men movies is a huge franchise. It's like the Marvel franchise. You That or Iron Man or whatever. Either way, it's a great franchise. You're in it. You've been in all the movies except this last one, the one that takes place in, I don't know, 1960 or something? The, the, yeah. The first class yeah. or whatever? Um, so how does it work with other actors and you? Like when you guys see each other socially, it's like they'll recognize you for your work. You'll recognize them for, for for their work. So then you naturally, you might gravitate towards each other in a room, but then like you guys aren't like friends right away. You're more like, Hey, your stuff, your stuff's great. Hey, your stuff's great. And then do you just become friends because your work is great? Like, how does that work? Um, you know, to be honest, uh, I don't have a lot of friends that are actors, and I don't mean that in any bad way, but, you know, socially when you go out and, like, you see somebody or at a party or whatever, you know, that's your frame of reference, right? It's like, I don't know this guy from that guy or that girl, but if I but if I like their work and I and, – and, or, or also they work with someone that you know, that's always sort of your in, right? Like, that's what you have in common, or I can go up to somebody – and I'm very um, – I, I don't kiss anybody's ass, but if someone really um, – uh, uh, moves me or, or, or is this a performance that, that blew me away or something that I was like, I couldn't even imagine how to do that. I'll tell somebody, you know, um, because I, I love what I do and I'm, I'm always sort of trying to challenge myself, but there are some actors that are like next level, but I can't, I don't even know how they get there. So yeah, I mean, you know, when I'm out socially, like I don't hesitate to sort of like go up to somebody and, and just, you know, compliment them and say, you know, congratulations. I love that or whatever. And, and sometimes that develops into a friendship. But m for me, more than anything, the actors that I really keep up with and the actors that I stay friends with are really the people that I work with. Um, more than just people, because I'm not even that guy on the street that like makes friends really easily. So if I'm out with people, you know, I'll say what's up and maybe be friendly, but I don't tend to like collect friends like that. I, I really develop friendships uh, after working with people for a long time. Like I guess I'm around people for a couple of years. Or, you know, even like the X-Men stuff, every couple of years you come back and you work with people and you develop friendships uh, on the long term. So that, those are kind of the people that I, that I keep up with and that I'm cool with. Is there anybody from those movies that you have kept in touch with? Yeah, I mean, um, there was a guy named Aaron Stanford who played Pyro uh, in X-Men 2 and X-Men 3. He and I were buddies for a long time, and actually uh, we, we, a bunch of us lived together. Two of the writers from X-Men uh, 2... Um, Dan Harris and Mike Doherty, 
and Aaron Sanford, who played Pyro and I, we lived together for like years. Oh, really? Um, like the four of you guys, you yeah. guys had your own little Melrose place. We literally, we were at Melrose and Crescent Heights in Los Angeles. Actually? And it was, yeah, yeah, really. We were just <laughs> off of Melrose. So it was our own little Melrose place. But um, yeah, Dan and Mike lived together first. Um, and then and then I think I moved in with, with them. Because that, that's when I was living sort of temporarily in L.A. Like I didn't really have anywhere. I didn't, I didn't found my spot yet. I didn't know really where I fit in. So they kind of, we worked together, we were buddies, and they just said, hey, listen, we got a room, why don't you move in? And then, so I moved in, and then Aaron moved in after that. And it was kind of a rotating thing, like they'd be working and out of town, so then Aaron would come to stay, or I would take off, I, you know, I shot, in, I shot in Canada a lot back then. So, like, Aaron would roll up and, like, stay in my room for a while, you know what I mean? It was like this ever-changing kind of frat house thing, but uh, it was cool. So I really stayed tight with those guys. And people like, you know, Anna Paquin, every time I see her, we're always tight. Uh, Ellen Page, whenever we run into each other, she's really cool. Um, a great, you know what, a great experience. Um, I'm married now. I don't think you've met, have you met Dana? No, I've, I've only, I, and I want to I want to ask you about how, like, about being, you know, showing public, uh, sorry, public displays of affection because you do it on Twitter. You're like, oh, you know, because you, your, your girl lives in New York, right? And you live in Los Angeles? Oh, I, I, well, I've been in New York doing um, doing the following, and she, oh. she's here in L.A. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I actually thought that you guys shot that in in L.A. I was like, there's no way they, they shoot this in New York. Like, New York is no, so no, expensive. It, you know, it's cheaper. That's a crazy thing. It's actually what? cheaper than to shoot in California right now. Yeah, tax incentive stuff. California doesn't have any tax incentives, so it's cheaper to shoot in uh, New York right now, which That's is crazy. crazy. That, yeah, because forever yeah. it was like, it's a, you know, it's, the only people to shoot in New York forever were Woody Allen, Mart Scorsese, Spike Lee, just those three filmmakers, and there'd be yeah. like maybe one Law and Order and maybe yeah, yeah. like one... Yeah, Dick Wolf, exactly. Yeah, there'd be like yeah. there'd be like one or two cop procedurals that would shoot in New York, and that's it because it was so expensive. But uh, yeah, sorry, I, I do. I def I'm sorry, I haven't met your lady, but I do. Want, I do. I will meet her, but I do want to get to the uh, how you guys, uh, how you are are very public with your affection for her. Obviously, because you're in love with her, but not every guy does it. But uh, sorry, you were saying you were on. Uh, um, you were talking about. Uh, well, some of the guys. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happens on this podcast. Um, all right, so so I wanted to. Okay, so um, uh, what was? Yeah, where did I want to go with it? Um, I can't even remember now. I got lost, dude. Okay, well, anyway, I'll, I'll just I'll just go right to. Okay, so you mentioned your your wife. You're you're married, uh, Dana. Um, I was uh, one of my hockey dudes were on this podcast a couple weeks ago. This guy named Sheldon Surrey, and he's uh, dating. Um, a young lady that was used to be like in a, like a WWE diva. Her name was Barbie, mm -hmm. and I asked him I'm like, "Yo, do you feel like uh, uh, pressure to show your girl affection?" publicly like via twitter and he goes all the time like if she cooks me a meal and she like tweets about it then i'm forced to retweet it or comment on it as opposed to just saying i love you thank you so much for making this for me it's, it's great but he's like i have to i have to now like take it to twitter to acknowledge it because i'm gonna get not not a, not in trouble but she might she might mention it and be like oh man i okay i have to so do you feel the same thing where you have yeah, to but, you have to make public like declarations of love and I miss you I can't wait to be back on the uh, left coast etc. Yeah yeah no I do you know I, I don't feel pressure to do it I just know that you know I, I know and you know that women love a man to say things publicly because it breaks down that sort of like 
that wall of like being shy or not being proud of the, of the woman you have. You know what I mean? And so I think that every woman loves a guy to scream it. You know what I mean? Like just yeah. yell it from the rooftops that they're in love. And you know, to be honest, I would have been uncomfortable with that in the past, but I, my wife is like the best, amazing, the coolest woman I've ever met. Obviously why I married her, obviously why I waited, you know, uh, yeah. I have my, <laughs> I've had my share of women along the way. And she was just the one that, that, captured me and I and I so I'm proud to do it so I don't really feel pressure but I know it makes her feel good and I understand that so absolutely if she tweets something or I will just I'll just throw it out there because I know it makes her feel good you know and that's that's what it's all about wait so do you do you recommend that other dudes follow this lead in order to make their girl feel special or feel like listen only only if you want to do it I think if you're doing it because you think you have to do it it's not worth it I think you're setting up like a false expectation for, for whoever you're dating, to be honest. And I just don't recommend it. Like, like anything, you know, in a, in relationships are compromised, right? So to a certain extent, you might, you always have to do things that aren't necessarily your first choice. But I feel like if you're being forced to do it, it's probably not worth it. Don't do anything that you don't want to do. How do you, you know what I mean? Like that's, just, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. Sorry to cut you off there. How do you deal with uh, fame when your girl is present? For instance, if you have an over, uh, an over enthusiastic female fan i mean you're obviously very handsome you still look friggin 17 when i'm watching the following <laughs> and it's like you guys you guys have a friggin uh, blue eye off you and kevin like you i don't know if they up the yeah. chroma but you guys have you friggin it's like it's making me feel uncomfortable watching you guys in friggin on my hd screen on my in my living room man i'm just like yeah man, can they just i might have to switch to black and white so i don't get lost yeah, yeah. in both of your guys eyes and whatnot <laughs> But uh, but have, so how do you deal with the fame when when female fans especially uh, approach you or want to engage you when with wifey present? The, so there's there's two different scenarios. Okay, there's the one scenario where the people are respectful and you can tell that they're interested, but they ask for a picture. And Dana's usually totally cool. Like she she offers to take a picture with people because that that's the real difference now. It, it's now that everyone has a phone that takes great pictures, you're sort of nowhere that you go is it private. It used to just be like, oh, hey, can I get an autograph or something like that, which is one thing. But now it's like a picture at dinner, a picture when you're out at dessert, a picture at the movies. And so Dana is very, very cool and very gracious about being like, hey, I'll take the picture for you. Because they're always asking like, well, hey, who can take the picture? And, you know, sometimes you don't want it if it's a private moment. I'm sure Dana doesn't want to take it, but she's always super cool. She's like, hey, I'll take the picture for you guys. And we just, we just go through it, right? It's just like, get it done, um, and you do it. And listen, I'm grateful, and she also knows that the only reason that I continue to work, the only reason that I get to do what I love to do, is because there's a fan base. And so you have to respect that, and you have to be appreciative of that. And that's part of it, is when people come up, even in moments where you don't want to, or if we're having an argument, you know, you go out with, you go out with your lady, and you're, you're, you know, you have an argument about something, you have a disagreement, and the last thing you want to do is, is smile and play nice, and, and if someone comes up, and it just happens, it's just life, you know? Um, but, but we both understand that that's part of being an actor, and that's also part of being successful, is, is um, you know, thanking the people that allow you to work. Um, so that's fine, that's, that's what it is. Now there's the other side where, you know, girls can get a little handsy, or, <laughs> you know what I mean, they can, you know, and, 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 you know, that, that sounds like you know, me. Yeah. <laughs> handsy sometimes. Oh, with you all the time. Like I want to like yeah. kill you like that kind of handsy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, so they come up and it's like, 
or they treat her like she's not there. You know what I mean? Like literally step in front of her and talk to me directly and like have their backs to her. And you know, it's, so it's a respect thing. And in that case, she steps up and makes her presence known. And I got my arm around her, letting everybody else know what the deal is. You know what I mean? Like yeah, we're flirting yeah. here. We're not hanging out. Like this is my wife. Uh, <laughs> and you got to respect that. So, you know, it, it's just as much up to me to, to maintain those boundaries and to, and to make sure that, again, my, I, there's, there's, that, there's that automatic sense of, um, and I'm just going to be honest with you, like it feels good, you know, when, when someone comes up to you and you're like, oh, they're trying to flirt with me, like that feels good. But at the end of the day, my responsibility is to my relationship and to my wife. And of so course. I, I got to set those boundaries. It's my, it's my responsibility to do that. So it's, you know, you know that's that. It's the, usually those two situations. People are like very respectful or sometimes they come up and they just like, or they, or they treat her like, she's my assistant and they just like hand the camera to her without like asking. Oh, you know man. what I mean? Oh, yeah. So that yeah. happens sometimes too. And then you just gotta be like, that's when I say like, you know what, why don't we do a selfie? You know, she's not Dana, don't worry. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just take control of that and just, and just make it, uh, make it work. So how, it's kind of weird sometimes, but it's all good. How many levels, how many uh, exponential levels greater is your fame at a comic con as opposed to walking down I mean, I don't even know where you walk in Los Angeles. Nobody friggin' walks. I'm like the only guy that walks when I go there. No, we're starting to. We're starting to, man. Because I've spent almost two years in New York, and I'm reminded of my roots in Toronto and how great it is to just be able to walk around. That's right. Toronto's a pedestrian city. Everybody walks. That's Not everybody, right. but That's most right. people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so Dana and I just moved to a new neighborhood in the Valley, sort of by like Ventura. And there's tons of restaurants and coffee shops and stores that we can walk to. So we're, we're living that life now. We love that. But... Um, to answer your question about um, Comic-Con, oh man, well, let me put it this way. Last year, um, I had two panels of Comic-Con. So we did the, the fall, like the following panel, which was awesome and amazing and super fun. And, and the first season that had come out and the show was doing well. So that was like, you know, an amazing experience. We had like diehard, diehard fans there, you know, several, probably about, 2000 people at the, at the panel, which is, that's a lot of eyeballs on you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. sitting up there and that's, it's a lot of pressure. It's a big nervous. room. Yeah. It's a big room. That was big. Then we did a surprise X-Men panel with almost every actor in days of future past, which is the movie that's coming out in May, like just in a, in a month and a half from now. And that had something like 5,000 people, maybe wow. more. Wow. And that was next level. That was like, like you were, you were like at a rock concert or something like that. I mean, when, when they call the actors names and you step on the stage and 5,000 people like start screaming, it's unbelievable. So that's obviously like a heightened reality. You're like, not only are you an actor, but you're an actor in a very sort of like in a world that's like very specific with like cult phones. And, and as, as much as X-Men is a, um, a big franchise that supports like millions and millions of fans, it, when you get to a Comic-Con, those are the most excited, ardent fans. Yeah, that's, that's your diehard fan base right there. Absolutely. And same with the following, to be honest, like the following, like, you know, it's, it's a network show, but it really does have a diehard cult like following. There's people that go crazy. We here, listen to this, Cabby. This is no joke. Uh, I think it was at the New York comic con. This guy walked up to us that was covered in tattoos, but he was covered in basically he was a huge fan of Kevin Williamson, the creator of, uh, of the following, but he also did all the screen, uh, the movies. screen movies. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this guy had, Scream tattoos all over, like the ghost face killer. Come on, come all on. Over he had Stab, which was the name of the, the fictional movie in... Um, in the Scream in, movies? In the Scream movies. And then he also had 
this really cool. Oh, this is on his hand, by the way. This this Nevermore Poe tattoo from the following. This guy was covered in tattoos, um, and it was all like following related, Kevin Williamson related. So on his body, this, like, on that. his body, on his body, tattoos, man. Hey, this listen, here's this. This is this, now here's an even crazier. Have you heard of the show called uh, Ink Masters? No, is it a tattoo show? Okay. I guess it's a it's a tattoo show. This I just found out about this. This was crazy to me. Okay, it's a, it's, and this is all related to comic book and, and Comic-Con sort of stuff, because it's just next-level fan enthusiasm. So there's a show called Ink Masters where there's a bunch of sort of up-and-coming tattoo artists that are competing. So every week they get these, um, these people to come in, and it's like a theme. So it's like, okay, we're doing a religious theme tattoo, we're doing a portrait, and there's, if there's 10 competitors, there's 10 random people that come in that agree to get these tattoos on them, no matter what they are. So they're pretty ballsy contestants. Oh they don't gosh. know who the tattoo artist is. Oh, they don't know exactly man. what they're getting. So anyways, a couple weeks ago, Hugh Jackman was the uh, guest host. And Come everybody on. on the show got X-Men tattoos. Come on. Um, actually? And, and, actually. And there's, there's uh, uh, somebody got an Iceman. Like my, oh, literally my face. Yes. On, their, on their body. And oh, honest, that's cool. It was not the best tattoo of the night. It was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, there's stuff like that out there, and, and those are the kinds of people that, that really love these, these movies and, and these kinds of shows. So it's amazing. So Comic-Con is next-level crazy. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's cool because it's a kind of place where fans that love this stuff that can't necessarily, like, get dressed up day-to-day. -day. I mean, some people think it's weird. I just think it's amazing. These people love this stuff. They can be themselves for the weekend, for the weekend with like-minded people and so it's like a giant party for them the energy is so crazy there and they're so excited to see the people that they, they and the characters that they love to watch so it, it's a blast but it's overwhelming it's crazy when you do those two panels is it is it just like a, a giant like Q&A with the audience like or or do you have to talk about I mean obviously you have to talk about the project whether it's the following or whether it's uh, one of the X-Men movies but how how does it work when you're in a room with 2,000 people for the following or 5,000 people uh, for the X-Men? It, it's usually, like, there's a moderator um, from, like, TV Guide or for Entertainment Weekly. Like, they run the panel. So they have a bunch of prepared questions that they sort of try to spread out all the actors and, and the producers and, and the show creators that are up there. And then, so it's really, like, a focused discussion about the show and, you know, fan-related questions. And then they open it up to, like, a Q&A um, where all the audience members get to, like run up as quick as they can. And there's like a couple lines, um, with microphones. And then they do like maybe a half hour of audience, uh, Q and a, which is all obviously the most interesting stuff because you just get people that are beyond excited, trying to ask you questions. And some of them can't get the words out. Some of them, I, I swear during the X-Men one, almost everybody, the fans were like, they're crying. Like what? Crying. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, they, they, they traveled from like Brazil to come to the Comic-Con panel. And they waited in for two days in line to go to the X-Men panel, and they got to speak to Hugh Jackman and Michael Fassbender and Jennifer Lawrence. Like they're, they're, They have an interaction with them. They're holding the mic, and they get to ask these people that they love a question. And, and the amount of time and effort that it's taken them to get there and the fact wow. that, you know, it's amazing. It's powerful. It makes you, like, just totally respect the amount that, that people really love the entertainment that we get to make. You know, it's, it's really cool. But they're also like those people. Like some of them are really fanatical, though. Like it, it's great. You're very, you're a very positive dude, and you rarely, if ever, criticize anything. Like I know that from about you personally. But there are yeah. other, other mother no, bleepers like me that'd be like, "Yo, this person's like insane." Yo, you like, crazy? Yeah. Let me, let me 
at, no, there's some crazy people out there. Like the first time we did a panel for the following, um, okay, so James Purefoy plays Joe Carroll, like our, the, the basically the most evil guy in the world. He's the, the, the serial killer, the bad guy on our show. And we had people come up, and this crazy-looking guy came up to him and said, I'd kill for you. And they just this is, By the way, this was a, uh, an autograph signing, and this guy didn't even get an autograph. He just walked up to James and said, I'd kill for you, and then, and then walked away. Whoa. It's we like, <laughs> like you, better, you better, somebody better tag that guy on his neck or put a barcode yeah. on him to keep that, to keep that guy's movements, yeah. man, because that dude yeah. is, uh, he, he, like, something will happen. Like, that will be one of those, those copycat killers where yeah. you start, like, yeah. imitating art. Yeah. yeah, and you got to think about that. I do think about that when, uh, with our show. You know, yeah, your show is all about copycat killers, man. Well, not it all is, about it, it but but like the central, obviously the central bad guy, how he influences a, a generation of friggin' people that just want to belong to something, and the thing they belong to is murdering other people. Yeah, yeah. Well, to to put, know, make it very line, simple. The tagline for the show, well, the first season was, you know, the FBI says there's over 300 active serial killers in the United States, and that's an accurate number. So when people are like, oh, this show's kind of crazy, like, you know, how could you put a cult of serial killers together? Well, there's 300 of them out there. And, you know, if you have the right person that could manipulate and, you know, create this cult, I mean, I guess it's potentially possible. So it's a little scary when people like that come up. And also we were in New York shooting on the street and some lady came running up to James again and had this thing that said, like, stab me, Joe Carroll. Come on. And, you know, <laughs> really? She, yeah, she made a hoodie that said that. And oh, then, like, my was gosh. So, you know, people really get into it, and that's a little crazy to me. You know, hey. that's that's a little over the top. But How long did it take you to shoot that fight scene? Episode, sorry, season one, like episode eight or nine, or maybe maybe like yeah. seven? Like, it was a pretty lengthy one for a TV show. I was like, wow, this is like a good, like, four or five minutes of screen time, you fighting. It was like, it was pretty good. How long did it take yeah, to shoot? A couple that, days? No, no, one night. We, call, we called that Fight Club. We called that Fight nice, Club. Nice, nice. Um, and yeah, and you know what we did, which we don't usually do. We only took I took one night to shoot that whole scene. But what we did was um, we took about two or three days leading up to that episode to actually choreograph the fight and have a, a real because we have a stunt coordinator, a guy named Tim Gallon, that's awesome, and he you know he can work fights up on the fly like anytime. We do that in the show all the time. Like it's written like okay, uh, Mike and Ryan fight followers. And then we show up on the day and choreograph it really quick and we get it down in like 30 minutes and then we just shoot this little fight scene. But that one, they actually brought like a real fight coordinator in because they wanted it. They knew it had to be like a legitimate fight. It had to be like with weapons, with pipes, with knives, all this stuff. So we worked on that for a couple of days leading up to shooting it. And I think that's what made all the difference. We actually got to like tussle a little bit and it was fun, man. It was cool. It was a really, really fun night, and uh, and I loved how it turned out. I thought it looked brutal and, and real, and we got to do all of it, too. There weren't, like, any stunt doubles or anything, so that was kind of fun. Did you get hit? No, never got hit. I got really bruised up uh, on my knees and on my back and on my elbows because I get, I get, like, tossed to the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I, knock on wood, um, I've never actually been like actually hit um with a fist in the face during any fighting and we shoot a lot of them on the following so we're real careful you know um it's it's taken me because i know you and because like you have such a, a like a like a young face like season two you're more badass like you're you're like your character is just it's like he's gone through hell and i like hell spit him back out uh so yeah what's the feedback like on, on uh the following it's great man i mean you know for me well, first off, you know, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head when you said 
you know, hadn't done mostly films before. And that's something that, like, they come out, like, maybe once a year if you're lucky. You're making a movie, a good movie a year that actually makes it to the theaters. Um, whereas the following, it's like every week for months on end, you're, you know, you're doing work that's being seen. So that was a huge difference. Um, just the fact that you're, you're more present in, in people's minds because you're out there way more. Um, so as far as like career wise, uh, that was, has been really interesting and actually really good. Like that sort of exposure of being on like a network show every week. It's, it's, it's a big change from just, uh, doing a movie every like year and a half or something like that. Um, and honestly, the response is really good. The, the weird thing is that, um, my character, Mike Weston, in the first season kind of starts out as like this real innocent guy. This kind of like, I call him like a shiny penny. You know, he's like a new, he's new to the force. He's totally. like Kevin Bacon's character. Yeah. He's kind of, he's not, he's not naive. He's very capable, but he's kind of like, he's just new. He's a rookie. He's fresh. And a lot of people really liked that aspect of the character and thought that that brought a lot to the show because, you know, Kevin Bacon's character was so grizzled and so intense and worn down. And now basically my character is Kevin Bacon's character. Yeah. Like they're a mirror of each other. We, we didn't see really how Ryan got to be so worn down. And so like, uh, just violent, but we've seen Mike get like, he's just been sanded down for, for two seasons. And now he's basically where Ryan is. So they're like a mirror of each other. And the real question is, and what we were fighting with, um, in the second season is like, how far does Mike go? So I have some people that really want to see Mike come back to where he was you know, which was sort of like this more positive character. And there's some people that absolutely love that Mike is getting his revenge. You know what I mean? It's like, they're like, I get it. I understand why you're, why you're unhinged. Like, that's what I would do. We get these people that are like so excited for, for us to like catch the bad guys. It's just like pure satisfaction for them when like one of them gets beat up or, or we will capture them or we kill them. You know, it's like they're murderers are coming after you, like put them down. So it's really crazy. It's really divisive. Like, what people want to see, but it's been a great reaction. And it's something, something different for me. I feel like I get to be more mature. Like I'm, I'm playing like a man in the following, as opposed to like you were kind of saying before, like just younger roles or like more of a, more of a boyish quality. Like now I get to be like a man and you know, I'm almost 35. It's time to sort of like graduate into those roles where I can play like, you know, law enforcement or a lawyer or whatever that stuff is. So it's been really cool for me as an actor too. Guy, you look like you were born in 1998. Like yeah, seventy nine, seventy yeah, 79. right. You got that Matt Damon quality, man. Just like you guys got those young faces, and you'll be able to work until you're a hundred and eleven. And the cool, okay, so. the cool thing that you do is you engage your fans on Twitter. And for those who aren't following him, it's at Sean R Ashmore, all one word: S H A W N R A S H M O R E at Sean Ashmore on Twitter. Whenever the show's out. It's like, you, you know, people are tweeting at you and you'll retweet with a little comment or something. You're like, hey, West Coast, it's coming on, blah, blah, blah. I think that's great. And that's, that's a way that obviously it didn't exist. You know, it barely existed five years ago. It certainly didn't exist 10 years ago. And whereas mm -hmm. you were a primarily a, a film actor, they would only get to experience you on television and some, a few thousand get to experience you. Uh, sorry, in the theaters, and a few thousand get to experience you at Comic-Con uh, or on the the one occasion that you'll go to In-N-Out Burger with your friend from Toronto when he comes yeah. into town. Uh, yeah. But now they get to now they get to interact with you uh, via, uh, via Twitter. Okay, so people love to say, you know, people are very honest on Twitter. It's either you're great or you're really crappy. How do you... 
how do you um, handle the wave of both, both the compliments and then the criticisms? Listen, uh, I, I, I weigh them. I take them both equally. You know what I mean? It, you just have to keep that balance because I think you get a really big head if you just obviously accept all the great things that are being said about you, or you can be really depressed and think you suck if you take, uh, you know, all the negative comments. So it just is what it is. Like, I, I just, I try to just take it as a balance. You know what I mean? Like, I, and of course I hate it when people like, you know, say something bad or like, oh, your performance sucked tonight or you look like an idiot. It's like, that never feels good, but it is what it is. Like you're a public figure. You put yourself out there. I, the fact that I read Twitter, like, you know, I have friends or actors that, that aren't on Twitter or if they are, they don't make it about business, you know, but I, I think it's a tool and I'm using it as a tool. So I, I sort of, I, I just, it is what it is. There's going to be good and bad. And I try to keep it balanced. That's not to say that I don't feel really great when someone says, Hey, I love what you did last night or that I don't feel crappy when someone says, you know, you suck, that was a bad episode, or I didn't like what you did, or, or you know, when you cry, you look like an idiot, or whatever. You know, like, you get those things. Um, but, I don't know, man. I just, I try not to let it bother me. And the whole reason that I even do the, the Twitter thing during the episodes is, you know, I, I have, like, a love-hate relationship with, with television because I think, for me, the best way to experience entertainment, and it's, it's what I grew up doing, was and I think maybe may you feel the same way is, is that you go to see, you go to see a play with the group, you go to see a movie, you know, in the theater with a bunch of people and you experience this entertainment as one as like a communal aspect to it. And TV sort of removes that you you're sitting in your living room by yourself watching a show whenever you want. You know what I mean? Especially with like um, being able to binge watch TV shows and download stuff, which I do all the time. Like, don't get me wrong. That's how I consume most television. But I think there's something really cool about waiting for a show and then being able to interact on Twitter because it's as if you're watching with all these people. You know, if you follow people, if you're, you know, you get the feedback and it's as if you're sort of watching it with a community. Um, I agree. And I like that. And that's what that's what Twitter uh, it puts you in the same room as everybody else who who, yeah, who wants yeah. to experience that one thing yeah and certainly yeah. for like live events Twitter Twitter is sometimes more entertaining than the event itself be it the Super Bowl be it the Grammys yeah. be it the MTV Awards Absolutely. be it you know uh, some you know some sporting or even the Oscars you know like that's you yeah. know and and like Twitter it's like I've said it before it's like you everybody's trying to have the best line in the room. And it's and it's and it's freaking <laughs> yeah. hard. And then you'll you'll read some. You're like some people have just some great one-liners. And and yeah, I know. people are generally nasty. That's like when you you know it's it's way more snark than it is uh, a uh, applause. But it's it's Absolutely. still pretty pretty entertaining. Um, no, it is. Who gets Sean? Who gets uh who gets the most heat for what happened with X Men Three? Who gets the most? Do you do you get any heat for how X Men Three? Oh yeah. Out? You catch oh, yeah. heat too? Yeah. You're like, yo, I didn't write it. I'm like, I did the yeah, best I, mean, I could on, on in the scenes I are in, but I didn't write it, and I certainly didn't direct know, it. People, people in general give X Men: The Last Stand um, a hard time, and I can, I, I mean, I see what they didn't like about the movie, but you know, I think who gets the most heat, who at the end of the day doesn't really deserve it, is is Brett Ratner, the director. Um, really, and, and rightfully so. Okay, yeah, and and I'll, and I'll tell you why because. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think the things that didn't quite work with the movie for me were not performance-based, and they weren't even visually. Like, if you think about that Golden Gate Bridge being ripped apart and flying across the Alcatraz and that fight sequence with Magneto flinging 
uh, Humvees and, and then pyro lighting them on fire. Like, that stuff was visually beautiful. I think there was some amazing stuff, the images of angels jumping out of um, that tower and flying. Like, that stuff looked incredible to me. I think what, to me, what didn't quite work with, with the movie, and I think when most people actually think about it, it was some of the um, some of the choices in the storytelling and what happened to some of the characters. Like, why did Cyclops have to die? Why did Professor Xavier have to die? Yeah, why Professor Rogue X died. Die? You know, why, why, did, why did Rogue choose to get the cure? Like, that drove me crazy because that was my sort of storyline. Um, you know, I, Rogue and, and, and Bobby or Iceman, like, that's really, that was my access to the, to the film. That's where how you always experienced my character was, was with Rogue. And the first two movies were all about Rogue and the movies in general saying it's okay to be a mutant. Like, that's what, it, it's fine. You know, that's the allegory for, for the X-Men. And then all of a sudden, in, in The Last Stand, it's like she's thinking about going to get the cure. And in one of the versions we shot, she does go get the cure. And I was like, that just doesn't make, it doesn't vibe with, for me with the whole tone of the other movies and, and the, the t- decision-making of why Rogue would go get the cure. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So, and I don't even think that was writing stuff. I think that was kind of like studio stuff. Like, they weren't sure which direction to take the, um, to take the characters sometimes. And I'm not even criticizing the studio because when you have $150 million or $200 million on the line with the movie, you have to cater to the most people, right? So there's a lot of, like, a lot, of, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, I guess you could say. And I just don't think, I think Brian Singer, because he sort of was the first guy to really, in my opinion, take the superhero genre to the next level. I think he had a lot of ownership in those characters and he had a lot of clout. Whereas, you know, Brett sort of got, was brought in to do one movie and maybe didn't have the same power that, that Brian did to, to sort of put his foot down with decisions like that. And so I think that's maybe why, you know, there's just too many cooks in the kitchen and, and that's the thing. But trust me, I will get people come up and say, you know, I really didn't, I hated, I hated what um, you did in, in X-Men The Last Stand or, you know, uh, I really didn't like the stuff with you and Kitty or blah, blah, blah. You know, and you're just like, well, what am I going to do? Like, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand people come up and say negative things to your face anyways but yeah yeah i just i just put my hands up and say you know i don't have to tell you because to, to be honest i don't think the movie's all that bad there's certainly stuff that i didn't like about it and i just sort of expressed them like some of the story choices and character decisions i, I you know i didn't particularly like but as a whole again th- that whole the wolverine having to kill gene i thought it was incredibly emotional uh magneto watching xavier get destroyed by dark phoenix like i thought that was very powerful stuff like i thought there's some really amazing moments in the movie but if it didn't all come together you know what can you do okay two questions one uh is when you got the script i think you tweeted you retweeted brian singers that's how i think i found out that it was you it was either like the front page of the script or something a few i guess maybe like a year and a half ago or so whenever it was so when you got the uh, the script for um, uh, Days of Future Past. Or the, the most the, the, is that right? Is that how, am I saying it right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're saying it right. X Men: Days of Future Past. Like, did you do you immediately go to okay? Where's X Men? Or where's Ice Man? Where's Bobby? Or you better believe it. <laughs> you, you better believe it. <laughs> Hey man, that's very honest, man. Because I would do the same too. Like, hey, where, where, yeah. hey, page, where, where am I? Page eleven, page sixteen. Let me let me put it this way, though. I was lucky. I didn't have to go too far into the script before Bobby showed up. Nice, so I wasn't nice, touring, but, nice. Um, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you get a script, and and when it's something this size, and and honestly, it's more for me. It's always about like 
well, what kind of cool action stuff do I get to do? Because that's what's so amazing about these films. I mean, the X-Men stuff is great because it's, it's character-driven action stories. Like, that's really what it is. I think that's why they've been so successful is because they've taken the time to, to set the characters up and make you like them and make you care for them. But at the end of the day, what's so exciting for me is, like, what kind of insane battles, action am I going to get to be a part of? You know, it's, it's I go back to being a kid. I read the X-Men growing up, and I'm like, I want to... I wanna, I want to be full-blown Iceman. I want to be iced up, sliding on the ice slide, fighting Sentinels. Like, that's what I wanted to see in Days of Future Past. And, and I'm not going to give too much away, but, like, there's a lot of trailer stuff that's out right now, and you can sort of see that next-level action stuff that, that I've been waiting to do for, for four movies now. Sick. Um, so Sick. I was really, really happy with the kind of stuff I got to do in the movie. And I cannot wait. To, I still haven't seen it. I've seen bits and pieces. But when do you get to see it? Amazing. When do you get to see it? I don't know. Usually they do sort of like a screen for the actors and, and their representatives and stuff before the movie comes out. So, you know, you go do press and you can talk about the movie and you've seen it and stuff like that. But usually it's about a month before the movie kind of comes out. Um, but I still haven't seen it yet. So I'm hoping that, that pretty soon we'll get a chance to see the screening. And when you did read that script, did you did you go to the, like, when you're reading it, like, how are they going to explain how Professor X is back, like, came back alive? I had my friend Nigel... I, I'm not sure if you met, but Nigel, my two friends, Nigel and Ari are big comic book guys. And mm -hmm. Nigel's like, one thing you got, and they've been reading comic books for decades. And Nigel's like, one thing you got to understand, Cab, is nobody really dies in the comic book universe. So I was like, okay. I'm like, well, then can you explain to me how the frig Professor X is alive? Can you, or Xavier, can you explain this to me, please, Sean, without giving too much um, away? No, I can't. I can't. You can't? I, what I do you mean? Explain. Because no, I, I can't do I, I have to, like, bite my tongue every time I want to talk. You know how long I've been wanting to tell people that I got to, like, full-on ice up and, like, fly through the air on an ice slide? <laughs> and I couldn't say it. I, for a year and a half, I couldn't tell anybody until it was out in the trailer. The second it was out in the trailer, I started telling everybody. I was like, hey, did you guys see that? That's what I got to do. Oh, that's um, sick. But it, I got I to gotta keep it uh, on lockdown. But there is an explanation, and I think, it, it, listen, they don't, like, spend an hour explaining how it happened. It's sort of like, hey, the mo story's moving here's the explanation, let's move forward. And it's that kind of thing. So they don't focus on it, they don't make a big deal about it, but it's definitely explained. Uh, the, now the question is, how did you originally get the role of Iceman? I think I met you right after you were in uh, X-Men, and I think X-Men mm -hmm. came out, what, 2000 or 2001? I think it might have been 2001. I think we may have, sh uh, hold on, let me think. Yeah, it was about, no, I think we came out in 2000, like 14 years ago. Okay, yeah, and I, rem I remember the scene, you're on the grass, and you're you're always with Bro, or not always, but primarily your uh, yeah, storyline's with, with her. Um, yeah. And uh, and you're like, did, okay, yeah, so how did you get the role of Iceman originally in the first X-Men movie? Okay, so this was like a total, totally like a normal audition, you know what I mean? Like, I got a phone call from my agents in Toronto saying, hey, you know, um, they're making this movie called X-Men. Uh, the director is Brian Singer. And I was like, okay, first of all, I know X-Men because I read the comic books. I know Brian Singer because I love Usual Suspects. So I'm already super excited. But, you know, a young actor in Toronto, like they, sh they used to shoot tons of big films there. And it's always a long shot. You know, you go in for it and it's like, they're going to cast somebody from New York or LA or, you know, it's a big movie and, and there's tons of competition. So I didn't think too much about it. I was very excited. I went in to read, it was like the pre-read with the casting director and nobody else, like no producers, no director, nothing like that. And I don't remember the exact scene, but I remember it was like two pages. There was like really nothing to do. You know, it was more like, okay, what do you look like? And, you know, here you talk, you can act a little bit, whatever. So I feel like I went in on those kinds of auditions like twice, where it was just kind of like pre-reads and they just made a couple tapes 
And then I finally got the call being like, hey, it's a call back. You're going to go to the production offices where they're, where they're starting to set up to shoot and read with the director and the producers, you know, for the part. So I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm getting closer, you know. Um, the other thing I want to say, too, is the character that I was auditioning for at this point, point was named John. Okay, not Bobby. His name was John. Okay. Did so, you know? Did he have power? Did you know what his powers were or no? Yeah. Well, originally it's actually John Allardyce who's Pyro. So originally I was cast as Pyro, but I'll get to that. Okay. So, okay. This, this is a whole other thing that happened. So then I go into um, I think the first or I think I went in twice to the production office to go audition for for Brian and for the producers, but Brian was like insanely busy with pre-production, location scouting. So I would sit there for like 45 minutes and they'd be like, you know what? We're so sorry. He's like, he's stuck. He's off doing like a production meeting or scouting and he can't make it. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, all my adrenaline's built up. And then you're just like a letdown. And so I think I came back like twice for that. And it happened both times that he just was, he couldn't, he wasn't available. And so the last time I came in and I sort of felt like I had nothing to lose. You know what I mean? Like all my nerves were gone because I'd sat in that waiting room and so when we got in to do the real audition, and this was the first time it ever happened to me, um, is that I sat down on, on this bench uh, as if I was playing the scene with Rogue where I'm actually Mystique telling her to leave the school. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if you remember that in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I, re- yeah I, I remember. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. It was very, so, it was like so it was I'm, my first time seeing you act. I was like, oh, this is a pretty good scene, man. So it was me, but Mystique turned into me. So it's like, there's all these layers to the thing. And so we, we talked about that and I was like, you know, what is, what's Mystique like? I wanted to know, like, if I had to do, if I had to bring any of her into the character, you know what I mean? Like the way she speaks or anything like that. And he's like, no, don't worry about it. She's like a great mimic. Like you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be doing anything like that. But I actually read the scene and I think Brian was working the camera. So he was like moving around with a camcorder shooting me from different angles. Usually you go into an audition and it's just like flat on. The camera doesn't move. You like just sort of sit there as if it was like theater, you know, just a camera recording like a theater performance, like you're just up on stage kind of thing. And he actually was like working the camera and, and different doing different angles and close ups. And I was like, wow, this guy's like really shooting. Like this is like a serious audition for like a movie. Um, and it was a great experience. I, I, I felt like I really nailed the scenes. And, you know, then you then you leave. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't think I probably heard anything for like a week. And then I got the call. You got the part, and I was like, "Oh, oh sick. so yeah. excited!" Yeah. It was like next, I was like, I was so excited. But it was only like four days of shooting. It was like you know four or five days, and I was like, "That's great!" Like you know, at the time, I was like super excited. So, anyways, I go there. I shoot the first couple days. First of all, I've never gone blank on screen, like as in lost my line, couldn't remember what to say, but maybe three times in my career. And the first time it ever happened was shooting that first scene on the bench with Anna Paquin. That was the first scene I ever shot with her. Oh the first man, scene I shot for the movie. And they started rolling, and, I, you know, I, I'd auditioned with this scene a million times. It's obviously in my head, like, I got this, you know. It's, I know exactly how to do this and what I want to do, and we've rehearsed it and worked it. And the first take, they started rolling, and they slated, you know, you know, uh, scene, whatever, whatever, take one, marker. They, they put the slate, and it's my time, okay, action. And I'm supposed to walk in, and I just couldn't move, and I couldn't remember my line. I was like, I need to remember my line before I step in because I don't know what I'm saying. And I just, I waited, I waited, I waited maybe like 15 seconds. It felt like a lifetime. And I said, hey, Brian, can we cut really quick? And he said, yep. And then, and then the line came right back to me. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm ready to go. And then he rolled again. And in history, like I just stepped on and did the scene and there was no other problems. But I've never had that happen. It was like stage fright. I just went totally blank. So the next, so still in that point, the character's name is John. And 
we get to maybe maybe my third day of shooting, and all of a sudden I get new pages. And I say, okay, these new pages are for you, Sean. And now my character's name is Bobby. And I'm like, oh, no. Are they making my part smaller? Do they not like what I did? Do they, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah, yeah. something wrong. And they were, <laughs> they were, like, rewriting my character, making it smaller. And then I, and I finally had the ball to ask. I said, hey, well, you know, because I really didn't want to say anything. Because I was like, oh, I'm doing a bad job. Like, they don't like me, you know, classic actor stuff. And I finally said to one of the producers, uh, I think uh, Tom DeSanto was his name. He's, uh, he was he produced the first two action movies and the Transformers movies. He was a great guy, really into, like, all the genre stuff. And he was very friendly to me and really helped me out. And he said, no, no, actually now you're going to be playing Bobby Drake, who's Iceman. And before you were playing Pyro, but we just think that you're more of like this character. And that's where that came from. So that's, that's how I became Iceman. That's nice. how I got the job. That was my first kind of like experience with it. It was, it was a blast. It changed my life. I mean, it really did. I didn't know it at the time, but it really did um, create so much opportunity. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still, still working on the movie. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Oh man. Um, two more things. I can get you out quickly. Uh, one, I want to say thank you for introducing me to in and out burger. It was because of you and we, we flew to LA in December. I remember it was December, 2001. It was, I think December 10th. And you were there with your brother for a few months auditioning for pilot season and, and just being trying to be working actors. And we stayed at the Highland gardens hotel and it was either the first day or the second day we arrived myself hype, uh, Drew Nelson and this girl named who I which is called E Diddy. I don't even remember her e. name. Emily. 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 I okay. Emily. I don't remember her last name, but E Diddy. Oh, I think Mike was there too. I think was one of uh, yeah. Derek's friends. Um, and you're like, let's go, uh, let's go eat it in an out burger. I'm like, what's in an out burger? And that okay, X Men changed your life. Uh, in and out Burger changed my life. That's how different we are, Sean. <laughs> I know. Uh, I know. And uh, and also thank you for. For those who haven't seen it, uh, uh, you did me a huge solid when you recorded a message for Matt Ryan, who's the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons. Oh, yeah. When you were shooting uh, X-Men, you just, you know, in one of your a few moments of downtime, you recorded a message that I played for him, which he freaked out at. Like, after we uh, cut, cool. after he watched the message, you were like, hey, uh, Matt, you know, I'm, I know a few things about being Iceman because Matt Ryan's nickname is Iceman, the quarterback of the Falcons. So... He watched it. So after we cut, he watched it again. And then his agent's like, how did you get that? I'm like, well, I'm friends with, uh, with Sean Ashmore. And I asked him to send this to me. And he goes, oh, man, can you send this to me? So I then nice. emailed it to the agent. So anyway, you did me a huge solid there as well. Oh, so good, that was, I'm glad he liked that. I'm glad that worked out. That was fun. Um, last thing is uh, when you do go to In-N-Out Burger, have you found a burger that has topped In-N-Out Burger in the L.A. area? Because I have this argument nah. all the time about in and out no. Burger because I'm a flag-waving, card-carrying member of, of Team in and out Burger. Listen, you know, I feel like in the last five years, there's been this, like, insurgence of, like, gourmet. Yeah, man. You know Up here, too. About? Yeah, here in Toronto as well. Yeah, so, and, hey, listen, those are delicious. Those are great. There's, like, Umami Burger here. There's a place called Counter Burger. And, I mean, you can get, like, any kind of meat, any kind of topping, you know, gourmet buns, like all this stuff. Listen, they're delicious. They're really, really good. But there's something about, like, for those of you who have not had In-N-Out Burger, they're like, they're sort of like the most basic hamburger you could ever imagine. But that's what makes them delicious. It's like a simple, and also everything is fresh. Uh, you know, their thing there is like nothing is ever frozen. So the meat's not frozen. They, 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 um, they make their fries by like 
slicing the potatoes right there in front of you. So it's that kind of place where it's really fresh and really simple. But no, there's something about an in and out burger with that special sauce, like yeah, dude. Style, with the grilled yeah. onions and all that. Yeah. It, it's one of a kind. So I, if I'm in the mood for a burger, I will go to in and out burger. There's also a place called Fat Burger down here that's also really good. Like, you know, so there's good, there's good choices, but there's something about an in and out burger that's so specific, so delicious that um, I don't want to eat anything else. That's nice. what I want. I want well, uh, well, again. We need to get sponsorships. We need, we need to get sponsorships. Yeah, we we're, should. We're like pumping in and out. I'll we'll see what I can do down here. Yeah. I'll, I'll work in like some sort of cabby uh, sponsorship. Please. I, I just need a couple coupons, man, just or, or like a card, <laughs> some kind of preferred uh, member card. Or when I go, card. yeah, like just give me, and the burgers are like $1.65. Like they're so cheap. <laughs> Yeah, and then when I when I go and I'm an absolute glutton then then uh, there and I and I consume about three thousand calories, I'm just like, man, I got to run up a friggin' one of these Hollywood Hills to burn this off. But I but yeah. I do it, but I eat the three thousand because I'm like, I don't get this at home, so I'd be yeah, uh, you can't do it all the time. No moderation, my friend. Uh, Sean Ashmore on Twitter, it's at Sean R Ashmore. On Fox, his show is called The Following, and on May 23rd, his movie opens called X-Men Future Days Past. No, you got that one wrong. It's Days of Future Past. Ah, cool. May 23rd, it's X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, yeah. it, it's, been, uh, it's been great catching up with you, and uh, thank you so much for uh, sparing the time. And when I'm out there, uh, not only will I be um, perpetrating your couch, that's yeah, where I we got a spare room for you, Captain. You, you do room spare room. Yeah. Okay, uh, I will be uh, sleeping on the spare room. I will be leaving empty bags of In and Out Burger around, and I may also uh, have a, a a female friend over. <laughs> so Fair so enough. try clear anything left. Like, clear it with Dana. See if it's okay first, because you know the happy wife, happy life. And if that's I okay, know, then I'm booking sure my I'll ticket. Sure that's okay. Okay, please do, man. Thanks so much, homie. Cabby, it's been a pleasure, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Cabby Presents, the podcast.